Welcome to the Jung Anthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. I'm your host, Ben Law. Episode 3, Individuation in Marriage Through Wounding and Healing with Murray Stein, Ph.D. Marriage, life's greatest intimacy, paradoxically delivers both wounding and healing and challenges to the full our capacities for self-acceptance and self-giving. In this lecture, Dr. Stein examines the mysteries and dynamics of married life. Murray Stein, Ph.D., is a training analyst at the International School for Analytical Psychology in Zurich, Switzerland. His most recent publications include The Principle of Individuation, Jung's Map of the Soul, and the Edinburgh International Encyclopedia of Psychoanalysis, editor of the Jungian Sections, with Ross Skelton as general editor. He lectures internationally on topics related to analytical psychology and its applications in the contemporary world. Dr. Stein is a graduate of Yale University, BA and MDiv, and the University of Chicago, PhD, in Religion and Psychological Studies, and the C.G. Jung Institute, Zurich. He is a founder and member of the International or Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts. He has been the president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and is presently a member of the Swiss Society for Analytical Psychology and president of the International School of Analytical Psychology, Zurich. It comes as a surprise to some people <clears throat> that individuation and marriage, individuation on the one side and marriage on the other, are not, not actually a pair of opposites. Individuation has to do with becoming more a single, unique, identity, whereas marriage has to do with joining and binding, intertwining, <clears throat> growing together like a pair of vines. Are we not therefore creating a paradox by bringing a word that implies separating out, individuating, together with a word that implies uniting, marriage? The theme of this talk is individuating in marriage through wounding and healing. <clears throat> this topic presents us with a number of terms, and each of these terms calls for some comment and reflection before we set out to link them up and go on to sound the central notes of our theme, which is that individuation can indeed occur within the context of marriage both through wounding and being wounded, and through healing and being healed. The English word marry, to marry, actually conceals or contains within itself an image with this same tension that I've just described. The word marry derives from, from a root that in Sanskrit yields the word marias, young man or lover. In Greek, this root appears in myrax, meaning a youth or a girl. In Lithuanian, it gives us merga and marty, girl and bride. And in Cornish, Breton, and Welsh, it yields words that mean girl. But most suggestively of all, the Cretan goddess Britomartis is linked linguistically to the family of words which eventuates in our English word to marry. Brito Martis, whose name means sweet virgin, is a Cretan equivalent of the Greek goddess Artemis. It certainly should be surprising to find Artemis, the virgin, concealed in our word for marriage. The story of Brito Martis is that for nine months she was pursued by King Minos. Rather than suffer being caught by him, she jumped from a cliff into the sea where she became entangled in a fisherman's nets. And there, caught in those knots, she was hauled to shore and married off to King Minos. The image of this fleeing virginal goddess 
embedded as it is in our very word for creating the matrimonial union, suggested to me a paradox within the experience of getting married and being married. The prospect of marrying, getting married, at once appeals to and threatens the young man and the young woman in us, or the puer and the puella as we call them. Marriage at once promises freedom to be oneself fully as never before, but also bondage to the will of another. It promises both apotheosis of individuality and free expression and extinction of identity. It promises both healing and wounding. Now it is the act of living this paradox creatively, I think, that yields what I will call individuation in marriage. This will become clearer as we proceed. I want, first of all, to put some diagrams before you which will give you a vastly simplified depiction of a personality's individuation through the whole life span. Individuation, as we understand it in the Jungian school, can be broadly defined as the story of the vicissitudes of the self in an individual's life history. Let me run that one by again. Individuation can be, under, can be defined as the story of the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, of the self in an individual's life history. And my diagrams will, bring, will break down this history into several typical epochs, each of them having its own characteristic dramas and forms. And then later I will connect all of this, uh, all of this material up with the issue of marriage and show how wounding and healing in marriage can be an important part of a person's individuation process. I want also to thank Faith Watts for these drawings. I take responsibility for the content of them, but she executed them, so uh, the, um, the uh, fineness of the execution belongs to her. Is that focused enough? This first diagram I call the emergence of the self in the form of fantasy. <clears throat> Let us say that at birth we find the self as a germ or a seed, a kind of mythic point that is surrounded by a vast field of uncharted potentiality. It has been observed by many people intuitively and by professionals expertly, I guess, that this is how we treat the neonate impulsively and intuitively, that is, as a self with potential, basing our capacity to feel into its world, to imagine what it's like to be a little baby, largely on our projections into this inarticulate territory. The infant has within it the not yet crystallized material of later selfhood. Now, if we treat the infant as though it were an emergent self, treating it with a sufficiency of mothering and empathic attention, care, then the self, which was originally manifested as only a kind of point of tension in this undefined field of potentiality, does indeed crystallize out by the age of four or five into a well-functioning self. That's this development here. But a large part of this child personality at four or five consists of fantasy, of what the child's imagination, rooted as it is in an archetypal structure rather than in personal structures, creates in the way of an identity. While actual personal structures of the personality are fragile and very changeable in adult terms, the imaginary accomplishments of the child are very great indeed. The child asserts itself vigorously, often with abandon, and it realizes its fantasies and ambitions in the form of play. It lives, as we say, in an archetypal world where in fantasy all human aspirations are attainable and attained. 
This diagram I have titled The Modification of the Imagined Self Through Optimal Frustration. It must be noted now that I'm speaking of an optimal or ideal individuation process in these rem remarks and with these diagrams. Any number of problems and pathologies could be spoken of in connection with each of these epochs in the self's history, but for our purposes here, the pursuit of those themes would lead us astray, so we won't deal with them. In this diagram, we depict the imagined self of the child becoming increasingly limited or modified through experience. Let us recognize that in the case of a normal individuation, the self does not disappear altogether or collapse back into a mere point. That would be back into some kind of fiction of wholeness, unbelievable. This would be a psychological ca catastrophe if that were to happen. But rather, it undergoes shrinkage or modification in such a way as to create firm personal structures and adaptation to actual possibilities for realization in the present world in which he lives. The archetypal foundation of selfhood is gradually replaced by personal structure as imagined identity based on identification with archetypal figures gives way to concrete individuality based on personal history and experience. To use the fine phrase of Chicago psychologist David Gutman, omnipotentiality is exchanged for uniqueness and the many possibilities are given up for a few limited realities. So we see the child who was Superman <clears throat> at three or four or five becomes the man, 35 or 40, who is an airlines pilot. Or the beautiful princess turns into a cheerleader first and then into a successful news announcer. Or the child who was king becomes the father who is a corporate executive. But even in a highly successful and rewarding development of this kind, not to mention all the instances where the process gets sidetracked into the backwaters of too much limitation, frustration, and pathology, there remains a nostalgia for what was once much greater, much larger, much more the self with a capital S. Even if the small, firm self functions successfully, producing real satisfactions in the actual world. There remains a longing for something more, for the more than. Even when we live successfully as adults, we live in the penumbra of the archetypal self. Now, does this bring forth a regressive longing in us for some kind of aboriginal fusion with the archetypal figures who were so grand and omnipotent for the archaic self? Or does it function as a lure forward to greater integration of the whole personality? This diagram is titled The Conscious Integration of the Archetypal Self. Think of the end of the second diagram as the beginning of this one. <clears throat> Here to the left, we see a formed and modified self, reduced in the magnitude of its extension through the replacement of fantasy structures with actual structures. It functions out of a central conscious agency that we call the ego, an executive that screens, adapts, enables a person to do things in the world. Now this modified self exists in the aura of a larger archetypally based but now quiescent and latent self with a capital S, which has far broader dimensions both in the, in the direction of depth, that is instinct, and in the direction of height or spirit than the modified self has. 
This phase of the individuation process that's depicted in this picture is what Jungians consider the classic phase of individuation in the second half of life. There occurs first a gradually developing or sometimes an abrupt awareness of the existence of the archetypal dimensions of the self. This comes as a sort of recollection of the archetypal dimensions of experience and resonates with childhood very often. Then there is a gradual displacement of the center of consciousness out of the modified self to a position between it and the archetypal self. This we call the development of the transcendent function. But, the, but this is done not through regression into an identification with archetypal figures or through loss of personal grounded historical identity. It takes place through a process of integration and assimilation of unconscious areas of the personality which are brought into relation with a conscious modified self. And thus the range of consciousness is increased and expanded. The development shown in diagram number two from larger imaginal archetypal self to modified self takes place, as I said, through optimal frustration. Optimal, it must be noted, is not maximal. It modifies without destroying by gradually channeling fantasy and self-image into socially adaptive and realistic pathways, but it does this without fracturing the rather fragile structures of the imaginal self. The development we're referring to in diagram number three, however, takes place through optimal enhancement. That is, through connecting to archetypal figures and powers without losing personal identity. This process of enhancement moves not by bursting inflations and unconstrained flights of grandiosity. Such would be the product of archetypal identifications, kind of uh, maximal enhancement, maybe and would have the character of moving in manic leaps toward some sort of fantastic godlikeness. Instead, what I'm talking about moves by expansions in the depth and height of psychological experience. This process produces an increasing sense of richness of the inner man, of the interiority of experience, of soul, we might say poetically that it increases the density of personality, the specific gravity of the soul by adding depth and complexity to it. And it eventuates finally in a sense of balanced inner wholeness and what we recognize as the experience of God within. So much for our thumbnail sketch of individuation. <clears throat> we return now to the main theme which is individuating in marriage through wounding and healing. The process of modification or shrinking, I submit, is experienced in marriage and elsewhere as wounding, whereas the process of enhancement is felt as healing. The paradoxical quality of marriage, which I adverted to earlier, stems from this double movement of both modification and enhancement within the marriage relationship. Marriage is a relationship of both binding and loosening. We will look now at what happens psychologically when two people fall in love and find themselves drawn into the force field of the marriage archetype, which is itself a symbol of wholeness. Uh, union of the opposites. Keep in mind that we are speaking of marriage as a psychological relationship and not primarily as a social institution designed to raise offspring and secure economic protection or to legitimate sexual intercourse. As an archetypal force and image, marriage promises regained and realized selfhood because it is a representation of the union of sundered opposites. Falling in love and being in love has been called a universal psychosis. 
This does not necessarily mean that it's pathological, although it certainly is turbulent. Consciousness is radically altered and often flooded by powerful contents of the unconscious, having an archetypal nature. We see archetypal dreams, fantasies, ideas, longings, all of these things appear. Moreover, what is usually taken to be a reality function, a normal ego, is radically altered and quite drastically curtailed in the range and power of its operations. In fact, it's practically knocked out. You can't talk consensual reality to a person in love any more than you can talk a paranoid schizophrenic out of his delusions. It's useless to try. Now what a person in love sees, I would submit, is not the modified self, the so-called reality of the beloved, but rather the archetypal self, another reality. This diagram is titled Love's Vision. The eye is the lover. The lover sees, in a sense, right past or through what others would agree upon as the reality of the person to the magnificent, quite overwhelmingly attractive and beautiful, but relatively unconscious selfhood of the beloved. The lover sees beyond the empirical facts to the ground out of which these facts come. For this reason, people in love often look so foolish and so deluded to those whose sight is limited to the mere facts. Now the psychological, psychologically sophisticated speak of projection. And without at all denying the validity of this idea of projection, we might suggest that it is easy to speak of projection cold-heartedly when one is not oneself gripped by Eros vision. Consider the possibility that there may be an element of psychological truth in love's vision, that it is not delusional in the usual sense of the word, not erroneous misperception. Perhaps it is partly vision of what can't be seen by others, can't be seen even by the beloved himself or herself. Perhaps it is vision into what is still unconscious, repressed, unrealized, left behind. Vision into the region of the archetypal self, to the God within the beloved. If this is the case, then the lover may justifiably ask, who is deluded? Who is the blind one? I confess myself to being enough of a romantic to think that this is actually a truth of the matter, <coughs> at least in cases of otherwise non-pathologically disposed persons. They are seeing something real, but something tacit rather than manifest. It is the aura of the archetypal self that surrounds and underlies the empirical modified self. Love turns on their imagination and imagination may be an organ of vision that can glimpse territories beyond the veil of current modified actuality. This is my poorly constructed idea of two lovers, well executed. Think of Chagall instead. Each of them sees beyond the modified self of the other to the archetypal self in the background and they see from the heart, or from the navel, as has been pointed out. <laughs> now suppose these two persons who are in love and normally psychotic get married. Whom are they marrying? <clears throat> well, small a is marrying large b, and small b is marrying large a. <laughs> and herein lies the rub. It is this rub that generates the paradox at the heart of marriage. No one with even the slightest impulse toward cynicism can restrain himself from commenting on the phenomenon of the morning after. 
This moment has been memorably captured in the musical The Fantastics, in the song, This Plum is Too Ripe. And I quote from that song, Their moon was cardboard, fragile, it was very apt to fray, and what was last night scenic may seem cynic by today. The play's not done, oh no, not quite, for life never ends in the moonlit night, and despite what pretty poets say, the night is only half the day. Now the day that is being referred to in those lines is when we see clearly, without illusions, what is really there. The haze, the glow, the moonlit landscape, the large aura surrounding the empirical frame, all of that has vanished. And on the morning after, small a finds himself also married to small b. While I was working on this talk, I happened upon an article in the American Poetry Review by Herbert Gold entitled, War Every Morning, Meditation on a Part-Time Depression. That article is one of the best accounts I've ever come across of the post-divorce depression. In his retrospective meditation on marriage, Mr. Gold writes the following. We marry, amazing numbers of people marry, the burned and the not yet burned, the twice and thrice burned marry. Almost everyone who loves thinks of marriage. And then we fill our lives together with responsibilities and routines, with days and nights which are sometimes even distracted and bored. This can hardly be anticipated. It is one person who submits to passion with close cuddles and shrieks. It is another who discusses carrying out the garbage. The shock of the morning after, whether it's the morning after, the literal morning after, or some years after, doesn't matter, is due to the sudden return or gradual return of each person to the modified, sometimes even to the submodified self. When small a is relating to small b, Small a is aware of his own smallness, conscious, perhaps even acutely conscious, of his limited, modified, empirical reality. And since this modified self came into existence through optimal frustration in the first place, there is a reminder of those multitudes of small frustrations, inevitably, upon returning to small a status. This is the carry-out-the-garbage feeling. Now this return to small a and small b status will be the more problematical the less the person has come to terms with, earlier, with the earlier modification process, or the more severe and maximal that earlier modification process was. If small a is too small, too shrunken, then his need for the enlarged status of an archetypal existence is so acute that he cannot tolerate the small status for very long. It's too painful. If this is the case, then the swing between large A and small A status is often very acute and abrupt. The way this affects the relationship is that the partner experiences this abruptness as a split, as being related to two persons. As Herbert Gold put it, it is one person who submits to passion with close cuddles and shrieks. It is another who discusses carrying out the garbage. You're married to two different people. But I want to underscore my opinion that some amount of swing between large A and B status on the one end and small A and small B status on the other is inevitable. And that some amount of wounding being put back there and even further modified cannot be avoided in marriage. And here manipulations may begin, the one person trying to get the other to keep them in large A, large B status. The successful negotiation of this swing downward into the modified self is an important aspect of individuation. In this sense, marriage and married life can be one of those optimal frustrations 
that have the effect of modifying and firming up the small s self. The dream of marriage as a state of permanent bliss, of salvation from partialness, of sacred elevation to divine status, wholeness. This dream is scaled down, but not discarded, in such a way as to produce real achievements and in interpersonal connectedness. But the success of this procedure, this modification procedure, depends on a number of psychological factors. First, both small a and small b must be willing and must be able to undergo these frustrations. And secondly, the frustrations must be optimal and not maximal. Even so, the wounding is real, and the puer and the puella in each of us resists it. Remember the image of flight that we found at the very heart of marriage, in the word itself, through its association with the Cretan goddess Bredomartis. At the heart of marriage is also an image of binding and being bound. Bredomartis is caught in a net, and there are knots. I quote from an article on knots in Hastings' Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, which runs on, incidentally, for about five or six very small, print, small um, finely printed pages. It's a vast symbol, knots. The symbolic use of the knot in the marriage ceremony is widely distributed and dates back to ancient times. The greatest development of the symbolism was in classical times. At the Roman marriage ceremony, the bride's garments were bound with a girdle made of sheep's wool and tied with a Herculean knot. That's this knot that you see up here, which has incidentally come back into vogue in the form of jewelry. You see advertisements for it these days. After the marriage, the bride, on proceeding to her husband's house, tied the doorposts with woolen fillets and later in the bridal chamber, the Herculean knot was untied by her husband and the girdle removed. I quote from an article on knots in Hastings' Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, which runs on, incidentally, for about five or six very small, print, small um, finely printed pages. It's a vast symbol, knots. The symbolic use of the knot in the marriage ceremony is widely distributed and dates back to ancient times. The greatest development of the symbolism was in classical times. At the Roman marriage ceremony, the bride's garments were bound with a girdle made of sheep's wool and tied with a Herculean knot. That's this knot that you see up here, which has incidentally come back into vogue in the form of jewelry. You see advertisements for it these days. After the marriage, the bride, on proceeding to her husband's house, tied the doorposts with woolen fillets, and later in the bridal chamber, the Herculean knot was untied by her husband and the girdle removed. Over this loosening ceremony, Juno Chinxia presided. Further details of the ceremony are given by Festus, who states that the application of the girdle symbolized the binding character of the marriage oath while its unloosening was for, was for a good omen, so that they might be as fortunate in rearing children as was Hercules, who had 70 offspring. On the other hand, Macrobius, in his description of the Caduceus, states that this represents the union of a male and female serp serpent as an offering to Mercury, and that they are united by a Herculean knot, which symbolizes necessity. Athenagoras says that the wand of Mercury is a symbol of the union of Jupiter and Rhea, whom Jupiter, disguised as a dragon, bound to him in the form of a Herculean knot. Like character, to paraphrase Freud, marriage is destiny. And we see from this quotation that necessity rules over it. The association of marriage, knots, 
binding and serpents, appeared in a dream of one of my analyzans. He was approaching his 10th wedding anniversary and his marriage was in deep trouble. In the dream, he follows a female figure into a cave where he meets an anthropologist who is a student of ancient rituals. I quote from the text of the dream. He tells me that the ritual has to do with couples, with becoming a couple. At that point, my hands are bound and two snakes are tied to my legs, one to each leg. Their heads face upward and I hold their gaze. I get panicky, then relax, but still keep a close watch on the one tied to my left leg. I'm not sure if the snakes are poisonous or not. Later, the anthropologist leads me to a coffin. In it is the body of a man who didn't make it. The wounding in marriage can be excessive and fatal. And certainly the wish to flee from such bondage, to perform a Houdini trick with the knots, is intense. The serpent, though, is a paradoxical symbol containing both the poison to wound and the potion to heal. If actual marriage wounds through the shattering of illusions and the binding of our puer and puella to a modified, limited existence to what Cornford called the long littleness of life, it can also heal. And it can heal effectively precisely because it is what has wounded. As I pointed out earlier, the means by which the modified self develops forward in the individuation process toward conscious integration of the archetypal self is by what we might call optimal enhancement, the counterpart to optimal frustration. We must distinguish this from maximal enhancement, which produces inflation and unreal grandiosity. Optimal enhancement moves within a maintained tension between the modified self and the greater archetypal self, in the Jungian sense of that term, self, namely the whole personality rather than only the consciously developed part of it. This tension between the modified and archetypal self must not be broken, for if it is, the small self either inflates into grandiosity, or it collapses in fatigue and disillusionment, or it cycles between these two states. Marriage, I submit, is a context in which this tension can be maintained so well precisely because the modified self is so deeply rooted there and so well known, having been crucially modified there at the same time. But for this to take place, the original vision of the archetypal self must not get lost. Let's return to diagram number five. Here we see now small a relating to small b, but also seeing past or through small b to large b. That is, relating to the modified empirical self of the beloved, but beyond that to the archetypal self around and behind the beloved. Small b is doing the same thing. What happens now is that each of them communicates to the other a vision. Now, this vision may have in it projected elements, certainly idealized elements, but also an amount of accuracy with respect to actual potentialities within the other. To small a, small b is also capital B, capable of greatness, a person with a splendid future, full of rare and subtle qualities as well as treacheries, highly energetic, really quite the homo maximus. This vision is communicated, whispered, 
And when it is, it often has the effect of constellating the larger self or archetypal self in the person to whom the vision is communicated. It may seem odd to comment that this moment may be experienced as very threatening. If small b does not have a firmly enough established modified self, the receiving of this vision threatens psychological disequilibrium, either inflation with its attendant loss of sense of identity or fear of the crash into depression later if you accept the vision. So in such a case, defenses are often mobilized, and there is a concerted effort to deny what small a is communicating. It feels like a setup. But if, but if, as in marriage, a person has assurance that the tension between modified and archetypal self is being maintained, then he or she may allow the communicated vision to enter consciousness and to stimulate his or her own archetypal layers. Diagram 7 depicts small b turning his attention to the archetypal self. What he finds when he does so will inevitably be a mixture of the small a communicated vision and his own separate archetypal self. It is impossible in my experience to separate these two and within the context of marriage it isn't very important to try. The high energy in the image of the archetypal self is actually due in part, I feel, to the cabalistic-like mingling of the lights that takes place here. By mingling of the lights, I mean mixture of the two visions, the one gotten from small a and the one appropriated for oneself when looking back on what is seen. Now healing takes place in marriage when marriage is the context for establishing and maintaining a vital connection to the self, to one's totality. This connection is established in two ways, I believe. The one as described in this diagram number seven, through acceptance of a powerful archetypal projection that stimulates a constellation of the self. The other may be even more important for purposes of healing. That is, the giving and not the receiving of such a powerful archetypal projection. The pouring out of an archetypal self-image onto an appropriate acceptor of it. Harold Bloom has written a small classic on the Kabbalah in which he makes the following comments. Sholem, who is the great student of the Kabbalah, Sholem theorizes that Luria saw the whole function of creation as being God's catharsis of himself, a vast sublimation in which his terrible rigor might find some peace. This is not unlike Freud's extraordinary explanation as to why people fall in love, which is to avoid an overfilled inner self. As man must love, in Freud's view, in order to avoid becoming sick, so Luria's God had to create for his own health. Now here, in relation to this, one might speak of an instinct for mating, for doing this, pouring out the self, as I did in an article called Hera Bound and Unbound. This instinct for mating which presses for release of an archetypally filled and determined image of the self and for mingling the lights with a receptive soul, to use Buber's word for it, a thou. If we speak of projection, it is the self, not only the anima or animus, which is projected in love. 
and to find a receiver of this projection, one with whom to mingle the lights, is to connect to the self as well. Now, without evading the fact that the image of binding and being bound is contained in marriage, the image of the knot, and lies at the core of marriage, it is also true that the contrary image of untying the knot, of loosening and freeing, is present there paradoxically as well. Remember that in the bridal chamber, the Herculean knot was untied by the bride's husband and the girdle removed. And Juno, the goddess of marriage, presided over this loosening ceremony. Marriage constitutes a vessel into which the self can be poured. This pouring out of the psyche of emotion, image, thought, feeling, much of it from the personality's deepest layers is profoundly therapeutic. So the very action that ties the knot of marriage also unties a multitude of knots in the soul. In the diagram above here, number eight, you notice there is a third factor, a third thing or a new figures, uh, capital C, and it stands between our two figures. This factor seems to come into being or to manifest itself as the two partners give themselves to marriage. We might think of it as the marriage of large A and large B. In large C, the marriage bond, the medium and ground of marriage, reveals itself. Let me close by re-invoking the theme, individuating in marriage through wounding and healing. As we have seen, both wounding and healing are essential for individuation, each contributing in its own way to self-understanding and conscious realization of wholeness. I will thank you now for your attention before reading this final quotation from Jung's paper, The Psychology of the Transference. The process of psychological differentiation, Jung writes, speaking of individuation, is no light work. It needs the tenacity and patience of the alchemist, who must purify the body of all superfluities in the fiercest heat of the furnace. As alchemical symbolism shows, a radical understanding of this kind is impossible without a human partner. Thank you. Well, the thing about marriage is its ongoing quality. You see, I think that's, that's an important factor about it, that uh, you can't get out of it very easily. And an individuation process requires an, a, either external or internal compulsion to hold your nose to it through thick and thin. If you can get out of it too easily, as soon as the modification phase begins, you know, I don't need that relationship or that hassle or something, and so it doesn't have its proper effect. And then the enhancement simply becomes inflationary. It isn't connected, this tension I talked about. So you need an ongoing situation. That's why analysis has to last a long time. It isn't good to have analysis of six months, even though it may be a good therapy in some respects, but it doesn't have that ongoing day-in, day-out relating to the same material over and over again, that kind of work. Okay, so um, I don't know what you mean by people who need people, but if it were casual friendships or short-term relationships, they, wouldn't, they might be very emotional and they might throw up, bring up a lot of uh, psychological material that you could work with on your own later or somewhere else or whatever. But uh, they, they wouldn't be the arena in which you're, you work out your salvation, as Guggenbuehl says. You, you're working out salvation. That's a big project. That's a lifetime work. Yes. I imagine it could, it could do it for a number of reasons. That might be one. It's freedom from what? Freedom from certain constraints. Uh, there is, you know, if you think about the marriage relationship as an intimate, ongoing situation, 
uh, it promises unconditional, uh, say, unconditional positive regard, to use Roger's phrase, or unconditional loving. You can just be yourself. You don't have to, like, you know, if you go out on a date, you have to dress up, you have to pretend to be something. It's a persona relationship. And there's a certain amount of stress in maintaining a persona. Whereas marriage promises, oh, I can let down my hair, I can be myself. I can be myself fully like I was when I was three years old and my mother just loved me for what I was and, you know, so on. That kind of freedom. And I don't have to work at it. I don't have to worry about dates and, and pleasing somebody else and it'll just be natural and flowing and free. And this is, you see, this is a fantasy about it. It never is that way, of course. But that's a fantasy about it. And one of the disappointments is that it's very hard to find a partner who has that kind of unconditional regard without any expectations, without any needs of her own, you know, and so on. And uh, so then you run into the, into the other. There is another person there, you know, and maybe she wants that too, and you want it both at the same time, but can't have it at the same time, and so on. You've got to trade off, and you have to do things for each other, and you have to keep your own uh, satisfactions delayed sometimes for a little while while the other person's getting hers met, you know, and there's that kind of uh, business compromise and so on that's involved in marriage that's, uh, you know, part of day-to-day -day living. Uh, but that reminds me a bit, of, I don't know why, of a question that was asked somewhere else that I don't mention in this talk, and it really is, a, it really is a, an important point because one sees it so often in marriages that have been going on for a while, and that's a situation where the question was, what about people who not only don't or lose touch with but, and don't project the large A, but, but seem to find only a smaller than small a in the other person. You see, they, they're constantly demeaning the partner. They aren't even seeing the partner at the level of modification, of actuality. They're seeing a smaller, less adequate, uh, thinner person, let alone a larger one. And, you know, the, that certainly is a phenomenon that happens all the time. And there we'd speak of a projection, perhaps, of shadow or the one's own inadequacies getting projected on a partner and then being uh, attacked. You know, you aren't good enough at such and such, uh, which really is a statement that I have a very difficult time doing that, you know. You start taking out your own inadequacies on your partner. So you can project inadequacies as well as, uh, you know, the self, the, the, this large, or, or even a dark shadow, which is a part of the self too, you know, the... Uh, as Jung says, the shadow is also an archetypal figure. It has dimensions of um, uh, treachery that, you know, if you're slightly paranoid or something, you can start thinking all kinds of evil things about your spouse and projecting that sort of material. Uh, all of which to say is still that if, if you're psychologically conscious enough and can catch it, you can use that projection to become conscious of yourself. There was a wonderful quotation that somebody put on the announcement for our workshop yesterday from Jung. I think the staff found it somewhere. And Jung says that, there to paraphrase that, often when people fall into disunity with themselves, they begin blaming their partner. Okay? You fall into disunity with yourself and begin blaming your partner. But that struggle, that turmoil, and that blaming can be the opportunity for becoming conscious. So what we tried to work on in the workshop yesterday was how to use these sorts of conflicts creatively and to become conscious of that part of ourselves that we call you. You know, you did such and such, you aren't good enough, or you can't, or something like that. And uh, that's just as valuable to become aware of in oneself as, as the, the finer things. Commentary today is by Peter DeMuth, PsyD, Jungian analyst in private practice in Evanston, Illinois. More information about Dr. DeMuth can be found at demuthpsychologicalservices.com. Hello, this is Dr. Peter DeMuth, uh, an analyst at the Chicago Society for Jungian Analysts, and I just got done listening to Murray Stein's lecture uh, on the individuation process in marriage through the process of wounding and healing. Um, he even begins the lecture by asking, what does individuation have to do with marriage? 
But what's really interesting is that each of us comes to the relationship of marriage with a unique identity. So we come, this idea of as being a unique individual, and we come into this place and attempt to form a partnership. Um, there's an old joke, and no offense meant, but there's an old joke among men sometimes that with marriage, a man's dream comes to an end and a woman's dream begins. So even you can see that, that there's something wrong with that notion, especially on the part of men, if they're trying to form a partnership. So Stein uh, reminds us that individuation is the story of the vicissitudes or the ups and downs of the self in an individual's life history. So, you know, if you think about the Myers-Briggs, you think about the uh, um, feeling function being the relational function. And it certainly is, an, uh, you know, an important part of the uh, individuation process. So, at the, uh, the quintessential relationship equation, it takes place in the partnership called marriage. Um, as Freud would always remind us, though, when describing the analytic process, there's always a wish to grow. So, you know, when people get married, they have these idealistic ideas that things are going to go this way or that way. So there is a wish to grow, but there's also a wish to stay the same. And so these two kind of things collide both within the individual as well as between the individuals. And even Jung said that man's most passionate desire, his most passionate desire was not sex, was not power, not even money, but instead laziness. And so the challenges of marriage are likely, as Stein reminds us, to wound us, sometimes and perhaps hopefully deeply, which can then lead to healing, and through the process of healing, new growth. Uh, as David Sedgwick so eloquently remind us, reminded us in his book, The Wounded Healer, it is the wounding, it is in the wounding that we grow, not in the avoidance of the wounding. So when Stein talks about the little a and the the large A and the small B and the large B. I was reminded of the time of my own marriage when my uh, soon-to-be wife Karen and I had to go through the Catholic process of pre-Canaan. And there was a, uh, the priest reminded us both that love represented the ability to see the world not only through our own eyes, A equaling I, but and or B equaling thou, but now in addition through our partner's eyes as well. Uh, known as position C. I got really captivated by this one. You know, I wasn't really into the pre-Canaan so much, but I got captivated by the idea. And he went on to say that our lives were, as a result, enhanced and more whole. So clearly, if you can join into a partnership and not just be stuck in your own um, idea or your own opinion, but also to entertain the opinion of the other. Uh, Jung used to remind us that nowadays, uh, it's so hard for us to give the other person's opinion um, any kind of like credence or any kind of value. And so this is the battle, this is the problem with marriage, the relationship. Do we give credit or value to the other side? So our lives, as a result, if we do this, can become enhanced and more whole. But as I remind my patients, I do this a lot, especially when I'm working with couples, marriage and being a parent are the two most difficult things in the world because we are asked to go beyond ourselves into a habit and understand the experience of the other, which in turn helps us to better understand ourselves as well. Uh, so that's just a couple quick reflections on the lecture. And in addition to David Sedgwick's book, The Wounded Healer, I would also recommend Eric Fromm's book um, from the 60s, but it's still very, very uh, salient in today's world, The Art of Loving. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The content of today's lecture is copyright Murray Stein. If you are interested in hearing more lectures by Murray Stein, follow the link in the show notes or visit our audio downloads page at audio.youngchicago.org. Check out our upcoming seminar, Encountering the Touch of Evil, Film and the Predator with Dan Ross, Psychiatric Mental Health Nurse Practitioner, on October 31st. More information about upcoming classes is available on our website. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. 
If you liked this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.